Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we have the privilege of hearing a lecture given by Dr. Timothy C. Tennant, who is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. However, when he gave this lecture at Beeson, he was then on the faculty of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Tennant is a wonderful missiologist, a scholar. He's been a missionary. He's ordained in the United Methodist Church. He's been a pastor, a wonderful leader in the Lord's Church, and a great friend of our school. You know, Beeson and Asbury have a very special connection in the legacy of Ralph Waldo Beeson. And so we're going back to a classroom, actually, at Beeson Divinity School back in 2008. You can tell that because there are several references to the political situation at that time that gives it away. 2008, here at Beeson, listening to our friend Dr. Timothy C. Tennant as he speaks on ministry in a postmodern, post-Christendom world. Let's listen. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great delight uh, to be here at Beeson. That's my first visit here, so uh, very impressed with all that I've seen, and thank you for this opportunity. Uh, tomorrow's lecture will be on the insider movements, and I'm looking forward to that uh, very much. Uh, I've been asked today to talk to you about a ministry in the context of a post-Christendom world, post-modern, post-Christendom world. And I want to begin by, uh, all of my own history, I first uh, formally studied missions back in the 1980s with the late uh, J. Christie Wilson, Jr. And i never forget being in his class and absolutely being just energized by so many new ideas I was hearing, like, you know, the uh, ministry to unreachable groups in the 1040 window, or what we call in those days the resistance belt, or uh, people going to Papua New Guinea to translate the Bible, or uh, people using tent making to enter into creative access countries and so forth. And those lectures still nourish me and uh, inform my thinking today. But one thing I never heard about when I studied missions, when I sat where you sit in these days, I never heard anybody say anything about what, for example, Brazil or China were doing to complete the Great Commission. And I certainly never, ever conceptualized the Western world as an emerging mission field. In my mind, in my training, uh, missions was conceptualized as moving outward from its center in the Western world to the unreached world, which we call the non-Western world. We were the bearers of the missionary message. Uh, we were given the mandate to, you know, the, the old phrase that often used, you know, the West reaches the rest paradigm was how I was trained. And I, I didn't know that even then... Uh, major changes were undertaking, were undergoing that would dramatically change the way we think about missions in the world today. And just to maybe give you a little bit of uh, a few snapshots to lay the contours of this kind of upside-down world we now live in, let me just give you a few uh, little brief vignettes. Christianity Today reported a few years ago that 85% of Yale University's uh, Campus Crusade for Christ chapter were Asian, and the university's Buddhist meditation center meetings were attended exclusively by whites. The World Christopedia, which is uh, edited by my colleague at Gordon Conwell, Todd Johnson, 
records that there are more Anglican Christians who actually attend a weekly service in Nigeria than in all of the Episcopalian and Anglican churches in North America and Western Europe combined, just in Nigeria. World Christian Trends, a wonderful resource, reveals there are now more evangelical Christians in Nepal than in Spain. And that's true even if you eliminate all the Pentecostals. Include the Pentecostals, it's overwhelming. The historic uh, William Carey Memorial Church in Leicester, England, is now a Hindu temple. And the church in India, the traditional home of Hinduism, now sends out more cross-cultural missionaries, if you count uh, even crossing boundaries within India itself, than any other country in the world. Uh, There are now actually around 400,000 missionaries uh, from the majority world. Another interesting thing is all ten of the most gospel-resistant peoples in the world, and I won't go into how this is determined, the way this is judged, there's like 80 pages showing their criteria in the World Christian Trends, but all ten of what are determined to be the most gospel-resistant people groups in the world, all ten are found in Western Europe. And all ten of the most receptive people groups in the world are all found in either India or China. In fact, Africa and China can now boast of the fastest growing churches in the world. Uh, China is growing at over 16,000 new members every day. And Africa, between 23 and 24,000 every day. Compare that to the Western world, which is currently losing between 41 and 4,800 uh, 4, every day. So, uh, Philip Jenkins and his uh, next Christendom kind of sums up this uh, upside-down world when he states, I'm quoting Jenkins here, in another generation, the phrase, a white Christian, may sound like a curious oxymoron, as mildly surprising as a Swedish Buddhist. (laughs) I I mean, such people can exist, but a slight eccentricity is implied. And yet none of these uh, developments were predicted 50 years ago. I think in in many ways uh, this may come across as alarmist or uh, I don't intend to be overly negative about the Western church or anything. In fact, I'm reminded of that wonderful quote, if you haven't come across it in in Hendrik Kramer, where he says, the church is always in a state of crisis. Its greatest shortcoming is that it's only occasionally aware of it. And I think the, the point I'm making is that we are in a, a really big crisis. Now, this is an exciting crisis. with opportunities for new transitions, but we cannot do business as, as usual. And I think the, the focus of this talk is on the collapse of Christendom and what this means for us. And let me explain what that means. Uh, the Western world, and this is my general thesis, the Western world can no longer be characterized as a Christian society in either its dominant ethos or its worldview. Christendom has collapsed, and therefore 21st century missions must be reconceptualized on new assumptions. Now, Christendom, what does that mean? This refers to a kind of a political and ecclesiastical arrangement or agreement where, essentially, uh, the church and the state agree to strengthen one another. 
The state strengthens the church by promoting uh, Christian hegemony over the society and cultural life and, and uh, even the legal traditions. The church, in turn, gives legitimacy to the state and supports the political establishment and even tacitly grants divine sanction to the actions of the state. Now, we're all familiar with kind of the official Christendom, uh, what you see in historically many parts of Latin America and certainly throughout Western Europe where you actually have, you know, the king or queen of England, part of their title is the defender of the faith. And you have established churches like the Church of England in uh, the south or Church of Scotland in Scotland and so forth. Um, to embrace a different faith is to be a dissenter. Uh, the, the Corpus Christianium is conceived of in territorial ways. I mean, traditionally, the idea was the faith of the ruler is the religion of the realm. Uh, cuyos regio, eus religio. Whatever the king was, everybody was, or else you're a dissenter and you can be persecuted. And so it created the idea that the, the Christian faith, and certainly particular embodiments of it, you know, Roman Catholic here, Lutheran there, uh, Anglican here, whatever, that these embodiments were tied to particular peoples and in ge- in geography. So, you know, if you belonged to that realm, that was your faith. That's why African Christ- Africans first said, oh, Christianity is a white man's religion. Because, see, it's contextualizing the world that way. That's how it was presented to them. But Christendom also, though, also exists in uh, unofficial, more uh, uh, basically civil religion ways like we find here in the United States. Even though we have a separation of church and state, there are innumerable ways in which throughout our history special status was extended to Christianity over other non-Christian religions. Uh, in its ideal form... Uh, civil religion helps to unify the, the, the country, uh, unify the state, providing legitimacy, kind of a moral cement, and there are many, many positive things about this. Uh, the United States, state funerals take place in the National Cathedral. God's name is invoked in, you know, political speeches. Uh, take the oath of office, whether it be Obama or McCain, it will be done on a Bible. This is the way it's done in the kind of the vestiges of Christendom right here in America. Uh, even now, though, the, the flickering shadow is to be seen. I, I think about right here in Alabama, where you had the, quite a national debate going on uh, in your own local politics about whether to display the Ten Commandments on the courthouse walls or creches in public spare, squares during Christmas time. I was in India in July of 2007 when I read on the front page of the Hindu Times, this is a very prominent newspaper in India, big national newspaper, front made the front page, uh, Hindu priest opens American Congress in prayer. It was the first time uh, a priest named Rajan Ned from Nevada uh, was asked to open the U.S. Senate in prayer, never been done before by a Hindu priest. It caused a huge uh, amazement in India, because they, why would a Christian nation do that? You see, because again, they conceptualize us as a Christian nation. And to, even in our own presidential cycle this time, you recall that when Mitt Romney was still in the, the hunt for the nomination, uh, the people were asking on the talk shows and all, uh, is America ready for a Mormon president? Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, several years from now, that question will seem incredulous. So, official and unofficial Christendom have, has governed the Western world, and particularly Protestant Christianity, um, in our world of Christianity for, for many, many centuries. 
And the worldview of Christendom eventually assumes that all questions have already been canvassed and answered. It's a confident Christianity in many ways. It loses the capacity to listen to new questions. It's hard for Christians to adapt to a completely new situation. So what I want to do is, to, my basic argument is that most of missionary paradigms were built on that as a presupposition and a general framework. So with that washing away, eroding if not gone, we have to reconceptualize missions. So what I want to do is I want to just mention briefly three things that I think uh, are ways in which we should reconceptualize missions, three kind of broad conceptual points, and then three specific, uh, might say, just kind of prescriptive ideas about ways that we can actually do this. Uh, the first is what I call moving from the center to the periphery. Uh, Christendom always conceptualizes Christianity as Christians are in the center and the mission field is always out beyond the edges of culture. All right, So we see ourselves in the middle. Christianity, therefore, is the prevailing plausibility structure of the whole society. Now, in a Christendom context, an evangelism always happens passively. You grow up in the church. You know, people expect, you know, the Bible Belt kind of mentality. You grow up, you're assumed that you will become part of the church. Uh, Christianity uh, is the normative expression of religious faith and ethical action. There are no major dissenting voices out there, no major alternative religious worldviews. You don't think about what Hindus think or Buddhists think. It's not part of the worldview of Christendom. And so because of that, we, we have to reconceptualize ourselves to see ourselves not in the center but on the peripheral of our cultural experience. And that's very, very difficult for us. Because we have learned over centuries to always assume that we stand in the center of our, culture, our cultural ethos. And we have to reconceptualize ourselves to see ourselves in a different world. We are actually standing in the middle of uh, the fastest emerging mission field in the world. I mean, it can happen. North Africa, of course, was once the heart of Christian faith. And North Africa, by anybody's account, is today a really important mission field. So there's no, there's no like Gradiel free card that just because you, we once were, had a very profound Christian witness, that, that therefore you always hold that card. Uh, that card can be lost. The second uh, conceptual change is moving, what I call moving from Jerusalem to Athens, from the Temple Mount to Mars Hill. Let me explain this. You all are familiar with Tertullian's famous question. What was Tertullian's famous question? You guys are so smart. What am I doing up here? You guys come give the lecture. That's right. Uh, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Uh, what has the academy to do with the church? The whole question frames the whole thing by envisioning a culture with revelation of God's word at the center. Who doesn't want that? In such a culture, divine self-disclosure is received and into the Bible, and that trumps all other discourse, all other knowledge. For Tertullian, Jerusalem symbolically represents a society framed by revelation, and therefore you have theological and cultural stability. Jerusalem signifies uh, you know, a redeemed congregation gathering to hear God's word. The, the, I mean, literally, the bells are rung in the steeple and everybody comes to church. The centrality of the pulpit, the shared consensus of the truthfulness 
in the transformative nature of the gospel. Now contrast that with Athens. Move from Jerusalem to Athens. Paul's on Mars Hill. Athens represents skepticism, dialogue, speculative inquiry. Athens is a place of religious pluralism, of doubt, and dialogic speculation. Tertullian didn't want to live there. I mean, after all, Athens is a very messy place. Athens is spiritually lost. Athens is very much unpredictable compared to Jerusalem. But the fact is, we are, however much we may wistfully look back at a better time, we are in fact no longer proclaiming the gospel from any kind of temple mount. We're no longer in Jerusalem. We are, like it or not, we are now in Athens. We are on Mars Hill. They are now competing deities, purported revelations, which clamor for attention in this no post-Christendom, post-modern marketplace. So the, the true God that we know may be known only to them as the unknown God, as Paul found in Acts 17. Thirdly, uh, we have to move from a geographic, particularistic identity, and I would even say even denominational identity, to a, a more global identity. Not saying that we shouldn't have denominational identity, but we have to think about our prior identity, our primary identity, in a more global way. That's a tough move for us. Uh, Christendom uh, conceptualized the world, as I said, between the Christian world and the non-Christian world. In 1910, uh, the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference, you remember that they literally did that. I mean, they literally divided the world between the Christian world and the non-Christian world. And, of course, the Western world was the Christian world. And everybody else was the non-Christian world. Therefore, we had to go reach everybody else. That was the way it was conceptualized. Here is a culture shaped by the gospel. We're Christians. And there are cultures not yet under the, the good news of the gospel. Here we do ministry. Out there we do missions. All those conceptualizations are part of our heritage. But if we come to the realization that the Western world is no longer a Christian society, and I think it's important to remember that we're talking about the word no longer is actually a very important part of that phrase. Because you look at places like India and China. I've worked in India for many years, and of course Dr. Sellis in China, and uh, in these contexts, there never was a time when Christianity was the dominant ethos of India. And so Christians in India, and I, I know hundreds of them, I've worked with them for many years, they know very well how to live in a situation where they're negotiating the daily nuances of life as a marginal, persecuted, mostly misunderstood minority. <coughs> the papers are filled this last week with the persecution going on in Arisa State in, uh, in India. They, that's a world they expect. That's a world they understand. They know how to live counter to the culture because that's the only world they've ever known. They don't have to, as we do, pass through the fiery furnace of adapting to a post-Christendom world because they never had it to start with. So we have so much we can learn from our majority world brothers and sisters who are in those contexts. So for us, uh, the collapse of Christendom has put us in a very uncomfortable position. And we have no real precedent for this, how to live out our lives on the margins, counter to the culture. We don't know how to think about missions, for example, without, and look at all our literature, without ourselves being the center, including the sending structures, the personnel, the money, and strategic planning. You look at it. You, all of it is planned, directed, thought about, conceptualized around Western money, Western activity, and of course we, we like words like partnership. 
The partnership, frankly, often means we pay, you obey. You know, we, we raise the money, we have all the ideas, and we're going to bring some people along to help us get this done done. I mean, I'm being, you know, probably, well, I'm being probably uh, you know, overstating the case because there are obviously some wonderful uh, collaborative things going on in the world today. But that, that kind of legacy carries over even when our language begins to change and shift. For the most part, we also have forgotten that whenever Christianity has a long sojourn with Christendom, despite the various benefits of it which we can discuss, one of the inevitable results of it is a slow domestication of the gospel that takes place. And on the one hand, Christendom provides a you know, legal uh, or a safe haven for Christianity, but then there's a steady domestication that goes on, gradually smoothing down all the rough prophetic edges of the gospel. And Jesus becomes very much a part of the whole cultural process. It's all virtually seamless. As my uh, colleague Jack Davis has written, uh, there's a certain point in the Christian legacy where you realize we're all nominal Christians, all of us. We just, some of us just don't know it yet. And so we're in a situation where perhaps the best thing that about a post-Christian world, a post-Christian West, is that maybe only a post-Christian West can actually rediscover a post-Western gospel, a gospel beyond the West, a rediscovery of the original gospel. So uh, that's enough descriptive. What would I say prescriptively that we have to do in our short time we have remaining? Three ideas about what this means for us. And there are, there are many, and I explore a lot of these in my writings, but I'm just going to mention a few here. First, we have to do a lot better job at the training level, which is right why, where this intersects with what you are and why we're all here together. Uh, students today must learn how to critique culture, think theologically, and negotiate a biblical transition in this time of the seam time that we're in. And the whole movement, and by the um, and Beeson, thankfully, is not part of this, nor I think is Gordon Cohen, but the whole tide is going the other way for seminary light. You know, make it easy, lower the threshold, dumb it all down. And that we don't need that. We need more robust theological training, not less, because it takes a lot of preparation to know how to occupy the margins uh, rather than the cultural center. Our mission's conceptualization of the past was all about moving from one cultural center to another cultural center. We do not know how to move from one cultural periphery to another cultural periphery. We have not done that very well. Now, I realize that in our day, the, uh, the whole, all the thrust of missionary preparation has been focused on contextualization, which, of course, is wonderful. And it, it does address some past problems with cultural imperialism and all that. But the whole thrust of contextualization is about blending in, causing as little cultural disruption as possible. Well, that's laudable. The new challenges will involve a much more nuanced reply to this. Because there has to be this prophetic ministry of the church at the peripheral, which you can never do when you're occupying the center of the culture. So we have to be faithful against a dominant non-Christian worldview, and that's a big challenge for us. Second, the gospel must become much, or those of us who bear the gospel must become more robust 
in responding to very specific challenges which hitherto went unnoticed. I'm thinking particularly about the challenge of other religions. Um, it is amazing, and I'll speak for Gordon Conwell. I have no idea your curriculum here, but Gordon Conwell, which I love dearly. I've been there for my 11th year there. But an MDiv student will go through Gordon Conwell, and they will, they will, there's now, now required to take a course, for example, in Islam. They will spend innumerable hours answering the replies of German liberals who are all mostly dead and largely discredited and completely ignore 1.2 billion walking, breathing Muslims who fill our world. And it's unbelievable to me. There's a huge disconnect between what we think we're praying, we're, you know, we're kind of we're pre- we're preparing people for the world that once was rather than the world that actually is. And so there's this huge gap between what we do in our preparation and the actual world context. So what happens is we, we lose our edge. The gospel is domesticated, and we don't actually address the challenges that are out there. Our people out there are reading the God delusion. They're reading uh, you know, Sam Harris's letter to a Christian nation. They're reading all of this stuff, uh, and we're not responding to that. So we have to be more articulate about what it is that is genuine Christian identity, and how does it specifically respond to the actual challenges both here and around the world that we are meeting? And I want to quote uh, from Tom Oden at this point where he says, and I quote here, The people of God must take care not to be swallowed up by the power of the unredeemed imagination which fantasizes the durability of its own idolatry. That's exactly where we are today. The church has got to be robust or will be swallowed up in this entertainment uh, kind of Christianity that's sweeping across. Third, uh, since the mission field is now everywhere, the classic and I think valuable distinction between monocultural evangelism and cross-cultural missions becomes uh, far more nuanced. I know that um, traditionally... uh, Missions is, all, is thought of essentially as the cross-cultural encounter with the gospel, which I think is still very valid. But it was because it was conceived of geographically, uh, it got us way off on the wrong track. So to this day, when I travel in the country, speak at missions, conference churches, and so forth, talk to missionaries, the, word I, the, the question I always hear to this day is, I ask the missionaries, where are you a missionary? It's always the where question, which is a geographic question, not to whom, not a people question. And yet in 1974, when Ralph Winter dropped his bombshell at Lausanne 1 and made the point that we have to reconceptualize missions as peoples, not places, that actually continues to be a huge, important challenge for us. Because with the immigration changes and with the globalization of the world, there are cross-cultural challenges in Birmingham, as every bit as much as Bombay or Mumbai. So we have to think about things uh, differently. We have to think about missions as peoples, not places, wherever they may be. We have to be much more mature about how we do partnership and networking. And we have to have uh, new ideas about global engagement. What does it mean to think about the church in a way that transcends particular denominational identities? Because we're in a situation where we're actually rediscovering a deeper ecumenism, which is which unites the church in ways that perhaps elude us uh, in the past. In Boston, for example, just to close on this point, in Boston, 
there has been a quiet revival going on since 1965. It's now been documented. I have the documentation at home. We've had a conference on it. What has been realized, and this is not just a Boston reality, but Boston's probably one of the best examples of it, there has been a, a massive movement to Christ where more people have come to Christ in Boston in the 30 years of this study than during the entire Great Awakening. Uh, both of Great Awakenings, actually, combined. But no one's ever heard of it. And the reason is because it's happening amongst the immigrant communities that are coming into Boston. So these are massive Chinese churches. There are about eight different African language churches in Boston with dozens of congregations. Korean churches all over the place. And on and on and on. We, Boston has more shared facility churches than any city in the nation. So it's not unusual to go to, for example, a, uh, I'll use my own denomination as an example, a United Methodist Church in Boston that has like 20 people on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock trying to figure out how they're going to make it. And the only way they can survive, because they, they've lost the gospel, they don't know what to do to get it back, they're in a struggling period, and so they said, well, we can run out of facilities uh, in the afternoon and night. So at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 500 Koreans come into that church and, and have worship services. And that goes on for several hours. Then they all file out. An hour or so later at night, the Chinese will come in. And so in this uh, church that almost symbolizes the kind of Christendom world and all the mainline liberal Protestant difficulties, that in that facility is actually also housing the most dramatic expansion of Christianity in the Western world. The immigrant communities are, in fact, the fastest-growing Christians in North America by a long shot. And now, of course, Western Europe, the largest churches in Europe are all pastored by Nigerians and, and uh, people from other parts of the world. So these are uh, my proposals. If we had time, which we don't because we have Q&A, I was going to go through briefly and look at uh, four groups, uh, mainline Protestants, Roman Catholics, evangelicals, including the megachurch movement and the emergent church, and just look briefly at how these four groups have responded to this crisis. Because what you probably already know is that these four groups I've mentioned have all in various ways either ignored or uh, taken on the problem head on with all very different kinds of solutions, and yet all four have, have really missed it. I mean, all four have had big, big problems with this. So we, we need uh, a new generation to think differently how we can be honorable to historic Christianity and yet be faithful in the world which God has called us to. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.